Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to spend a few minutes searching the Scriptures with me as we continue to investigate what was Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that the Gospel of the Kingdom was the main preoccupation of Jesus during the ministry which he conducted in Galilee some 2,000 years ago. Not only that, the Gospel of the Kingdom was the central concern of the apostles as they learned how to preach the gospel in company with Jesus. The kingdom was so important to Jesus that even after the resurrection in Acts 1-3, Jesus conducted a six-week seminar speaking to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Acts 1-3. In Acts 1-6, the apostles asked their famous last question, they said, in view of everything that Jesus had said about the kingdom, has the time now come for you to establish the kingdom in Israel, to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is the time now ripe for that great event, that great kingdom event, the restoration of the kingdom in Israel? And Jesus replied to them, in fact, the last recorded words we have from him, was that the kingdom was to come at a time unknown to them. It was not for them to know when that great kingdom would be restored in the land of Israel. It was not a question of whether this would happen. That's assumed. It was correctly assumed on the basis of everything the Hebrew prophets had written, and it had been confirmed by Jesus. After all, as Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus was a minister of the circumcision, a minister to the Jews, to confirm the promises made to the forefathers, to the patriarchs, and the promise made to the patriarchs was that they were going to have the kingdom or the land as their possession in perpetuity. You'll find that in the contract, in the covenant made between God and Abraham. And don't forget that the gospel, the Christian gospel, that is, was preached in advance to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 8. If we're Christians, then we belong to the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3:29, And we become, as Paul said in that same verse, Galatians 3.29, we become heirs of the promise made to Abraham. And the promise made to Abraham, you'll find, if you'll examine the earlier chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 12 onwards, the promise was that he would have the land, that he would own the land and possess it forever. That was the basis of the great covenant made between God and the father of the faithful, as Paul calls him, Abraham. The promise of the land in the Old Testament simply becomes the promise of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that the faithful are going to have the kingdom as their inheritance, and he also said they're going to possess the land as their inheritance. Matthew 5, verse 5. The whole good news and the gospel as Jesus brought it has to do with the announcement of that great time coming when the faithful are going to be immortalized the government of this world will change hands. No longer will it be in the hands of those who have corrupted this evil system, but it will be in the hands of God's chosen vice-regent, that's to say the Messiah. From the beginning, God planned to restore peace and prosperity, safety and security, an absence of drugs and divorce and murder and adultery. God planned all of that from the beginning to restore Edenic conditions on the earth and he's going to do it by sending the Messiah to perform the function for which Messiah was born in the first place. You remember that Gabriel said to Mary, Your son is going to have the throne 
of his father David, and he's going to rule over the people of Israel forever in the future kingdom, that is, Luke 1, verse 32. In that same section of Scripture, Gabriel gave some excellent information by way of defining who the Son of God is. How is it that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, Gabriel had the answer in Luke 1, verse 35. It was because of the supernatural activity of God working to create a miracle in the womb of Mary, because of that stupendous miracle that Jesus is entitled to be the Son of God. The term Son of God, of course, as readers of the Bible in the time of Jesus recognized, was based on that great psalm, too, in which God had said of the Messiah, This day I have begotten you. Now that was a prophecy of the begetting or the bringing into being of the Son of God. And that great event occurred, according to Luke 1.35, when Mary conceived a baby supernaturally. Listen to the words of Gabriel in Luke 1.35. The angel answered and said to Mary, Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason precisely, the holy offspring will be called the Son of God. Anybody hearing those words of Gabriel would recall also the celebrated passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God promised to David an ultimate descendant, a member of the royal family of David, who would be called the Son of God. Here are those precious words in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 11. The Lord declared to David that the Lord will make a dynasty for David, a royal house for David. And then these words were addressed to David in regard to this famous dynasty or royal house destined for the house of David. Verse 12 of Second Samuel 7 reads like this, When your days, David, are complete and you lie down with your fathers, and I note in passing that people don't go to heaven in the Bible, they lie down to sleep, the sleep of death with their fathers. When you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house or dynasty for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. There we have the concept of the Son of God. The term Son of God in the Bible means the royal messianic descendant of David and of Abraham. God becomes the father of the Messiah when he's born, when he's supernaturally conceived, as we found in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It's because of that miracle, that conception miracle wrought in the womb of Mary, precisely because of that event, that Jesus is entitled to be called the Son of God. Now, it's important to notice that the view about Jesus as being Son of God as a result of that supernatural conception is quite different from what churches in later centuries devised as theological dogma. Luke and Gabriel, whom he reports, indeed Mary, who probably gave this report to Luke personally, knew nothing about church councils in the 4th and 5th centuries. In those centuries, churches came up with quite different notions of who Jesus was, their definition of Son of God differs radically from the definition given in those early chapters of Luke, based, of course, on the Hebrew Bible. 
It's important to notice that Gentile leaders in the church after the time of the Bible misunderstood a great measure of the truth which had been presented in the Bible. You see, the biblical writers were Jews, with the probable exception of Luke. The Bible is a Jewish book based on Jewish promises about the Messiah, and the Messiah was to be born in the house of Israel. You remember the famous passage in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, where God through Moses predicted how the Messiah, the Son of God, would come into being. God said there in that passage in Deuteronomy 18 that he would raise up a member of the family of Israel and that he, God, would place God's words in the mouth of that human individual and everybody who failed to listen to the words of that chosen Messiah, the Son of God, would be held guilty. It is out of that basic concept that Jesus presents himself as the legal agent of God, the spokesman of God, speaking the very words of God. Jesus, if you like, is a super Moses, a super prophet, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate spokesman of God. It is in a son that God has spoken in these last days, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and those early verses there. God in the past, that passage of Scripture says, spoke in different ways through the prophets, but has at the end of that time spoken to us in a son. That son was Jesus of Nazareth, the chosen Messiah, the Messiah who is destined indeed to return from his present session at the right hand of the Father in heaven, to return to govern the nations on this earth. Jesus, you see, is coming back to the earth. He is not coming to pay a short visit to the earth and whisk people off to heaven, as sometimes we hear. He's coming back to the earth. It's his return to the earth that the Bible predicts. He's coming back to stay, and he's going to rule on the earth with his saints. Revelation 5 and verse 10. You will find that in the Bible, the whole messianic drama, the whole story of kingship as it unfolds from the beginning right to the end of the book of Revelation, depends on two major components. First of all, the land, the land or the kingdom, and secondly, the king who controls that land. The land promise is to be ultimately the entirety of the earth, and the king who's going to dominate the earth and rule it is Jesus. Well, you may say that's fine for Jesus, but what about me? The point of being a Christian is to train now to assist Messiah in the rulership of the world. Jesus, being a generous king, shares his kingship and his kingdom with his followers. That was the whole point of the new covenant. Do you remember that the Last Supper in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30? Jesus said of the disciples, You are the ones who have stood by me through all of my trials. And just as my Father has covenanted me a kingdom, I covenant with you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you are going to sit on thrones to rule the twelve tribes of Israel. There we have the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God promise, the kingdom for which we are praying, Thy kingdom come. It will be a kingdom on the earth, and it will be a kingdom administered by Jesus, by the apostles, and by the faithful of all the ages. Do you remember in the famous parable in Luke 19 that when Jesus, as the nobleman, returns from heaven, having received his kingdom, he then assesses the work of his various followers. And he says to one who performed well, 
Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, take charge of ten cities. Be in authority over ten cities. Jesus there gives as a reward to faithfulness, rulership and authority and governmental power over ten cities. It will be presumably a kind of mayoral function which is conferred upon the followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus repeated in very clear terms what it is he proposes to offer his faithful when he returns to establish the kingdom. To him who overcomes, Jesus said in Revelation 2 verse 26, and to him who keeps my deeds, that to say carries out the activities which I commanded him as a Christian, to those I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken in pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Now that passage in Revelation 2.26, I'm sure you'll see, is a direct parallel to the promise made in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. It was on the occasion of the Last Supper that Jesus declared, that he was going to ratify the covenant by shedding his blood. All covenants and contracts in the Bible are ratified, are brought into force by the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no bringing into being of a contract or covenant. Jesus, therefore, shed his blood to ratify the new covenant, which is the gift of the kingdom. I've written a book on this issue of the kingdom of God. We'd like you to have a free copy of this for your personal Bible study at home. Join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.